Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, you are good and faithful God. You are just, you are without evil, you are without sin, you are upright. And this is the God that we worship and we're so thankful, God, that you're a God of us. Lord, as we come before you to listen to your word, prepare our hearts, open our hearts, open our ears to understand your word, to wrestle uh, with some difficult uh, passage, difficult uh, verses rather in this passage. Uh, more importantly, help us to behold you and your greatness and your majesty. Uh, help me to preach as well, to preach clearly and rightly so that your people may be edified and that your name uh, will be magnified as well. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, good morning, Smack One. Uh, it's a joy to be able to preach God's Word this uh, morning with everyone. As ooh, I did the last week, I came. The Christmas tree was not littered up, uh, but now it's littered up, which means, uh, I mean, it's December. Uh, it's Christmas. This morning, the Iban had a ho 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 ho. It was very loud. It was like, what's going on here? So we know the Christmas season uh, is around. Uh, which also means uh, we're at the end of the year. And one of the things I think we like to do at the end of the year, I think, is to look back at our past, right? to look back at the year that we've been through, how it was, and things like that. Uh, the good, the bad, whatever you went through, you think about it. And also looking forward, uh, perhaps to 2024, maybe some of your kids will be in high school next year. And some of your kids may be going to uni or you're changing, whatever it is. So you're having a kid, uh, who knows, uh, that you look forward to what is to come. And as we come today uh, to the final chapter of 2 Samuel in chapter 24, I think the author of uh, 2 Samuel is doing that. Right? He's doing this looking behind and reminding us of the past and giving us a sneak peek of what is to come uh, in the rest of God's story in the Bible. Uh, so in the large part of this chapter, in chapter 24, uh, the author reminds us about the past of David and how he is not the perfect king. But more importantly than not only reminding us of how imperfect David is, but the author reminds us of who God is, that he's a God not just of love, but he's a God of wrath and justice, and how God exercises his holiness and his wrath upon his king and upon his imperfect people. So, and yeah, that's looking back. And as looking forward, as chapter 24 ends, the author also helps us to look forward to King Solomon, and to the rest of the kings in 1 and 2 Kings, and how that part of the story will continue to unfold. So like as, as Tim mentioned just now, there's a couple of uh, in difficult parts of this passage that we have to wrestle with. Uh, so hopefully we can do that this morning. So if you can look at your Bible, you can look at the screen as well. Feel free to ask questions later. And let's dive right into God's Word. So in verse 1, uh, right off the bat, we see God being angry. Oh, it says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, right off the bat, uh, why is God angry against Israel? Don't ask me. I don't know. Uh, there's no answer in the passage. There's no answer to exactly why God was angry at Israel. Uh, but as we sang the song just now, even as we look at passages such as Psalms 145.17, allow me to read it. It says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Uh, the passage doesn't tell us why God is angry with Israel, but let's be honest, God has every right to be angry. I mean, we read Exodus, we read Numbers, we see you know, the, deprav the, the depravity rather, of human and humanity. But just a reminder that God is just. And even as we look forward into another difficult passage, remember God is just by who he is. If God is perfect, he must be just. And he's a good God. 
So whatever the reason is, God is angry against Israel. So God is angry against Israel. So what does he do then? What does the Lord do? Well, in verse, it continues then, it says that God incited David against them, saying, go and number Israel and Judah. Now, the word incited there could mean urged strongly. It could mean persuaded. Or a very, very strong translation is tempted. Right? God tempted David. Now, before you throw a stone at me. Uh, difficult, right? Uh, we must answer the question. Very, 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 it's a difficult question to answer. But how can a good and holy God incite or tempt David or tempt someone? I mean, we look at verses such as James 1.13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So how do we see this passage then? How do we see the Lord incited David? I think the issue at hand here uh, is David's pride and David's disobedience. That is the main issue at hand. You see, David was incited to take the number of Israel and Judah. And the Bible has a technical term for it. It's called taking a census. So what is wrong with taking a census or counting things, you may ask? Well, the action in of itself, taking number, taking census, is not wrong in of itself. If you look at Numbers 26 verses 1 to 2, and specifically in verse 2, it explains, uh, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. So that's what well, numbers or taking a census or numbering things, that's the purpose of it, is to count people who are able to go to war. So what can be wrong about that? Well, right there, right off the top in verse 1, who is the one who commanded the census to be taken? The Lord. The Lord said to Moses. Right? So the Lord is the one who commands a census. That is the beginning of a census. You don't take a census without God's command. Now, if we go to another passage in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 12, and I think we can have a better understanding, even deeper understanding of a census. So it says, Exodus 30 tells us that every time you take a census, there must be a ransom given to, for each person's census that was taken. A ransom is a payment uh, to God that eventually will become for the temple, but a payment uh, to God so that there, be no, there may be no plague among them when you number them. So you take a census, you pay so that there may be no plague. And we have seen just now in the passage, there is a plague. So David didn't pay. There was no ransom given. So you see, I think that this, the, what's the issue at hand here is David's pride. As he took the census, firstly, without God commanding it, and it, when, he, when he did in fact take the census, he did not follow God's instructions when taking this census. Perhaps he wanted to take a census to flex his muscle, to show off his military might. Perhaps, this is what I think, perhaps the author of Samuel purposely puts chapter 24 after chapter 23. And what did we look at last week? A bunch of strong, mighty men. Right? I think maybe just to put it behind a chapter of strong, mighty men, just to remind us one more time that the reason for any success, the reason for any victory of Israel belongs to the Lord. The glory belongs to Him and not in of the mighty men themselves and not the military might of Israel. Even Joab, 
right? Whom David, is a very sus character, as we've mentioned, the hold of this Second uh, Samuel. He says to David in verse 3, he says, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as they are. While the eyes of my Lord, the king still see it. And look at this. But why does the Lord my king delight in this thing? Essentially, he's saying, Hey, David, trust in God. Why don't you trust in God? God will provide the people for you. Why do you insist on taking this census? Well, despite Joab's disagreement, David was still insistent. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but verse 5 all the way to verse 9, you can see uh, he went through places to place, from 10 to Bathsheba, take the census, took 9 months and 20 days, 800,000 army men for Israel, 500,000 army men for Judah, um, and he took the number. So David's pride is at play here. You see, David always wanted to take that census. David's pride was the issue here. So this is how we can reconcile the Lord incited David. Now, of course, you can go to 1 Chronicles. It says Satan incited David. Then you can go to Job. It helps you there. You can appeal to mystery and how God does it. But one way I'm going to appeal to it is the Lord gives David over to his sin. Right, he simply gives David over to the sin that David always and wanted to commit. Romans 1, for God gave them up to the, their dishonorable passions. We all want to sin. God simply gives us in judgment over to our sin. So David's pride is the problem here. Now, oftentimes, just looking, now that's the text. We wrestle with the text. But even for us, uh, let's be honest, even for us, we are prideful in a lot of different ways. I surely am. We do a lot of things in our lives without seeking God and His will. And although the Bible has clearly revealed what God wants us to do, we still insist on doing things our own way, our own methods. Maybe because we think we are better than God. Maybe we think that we are better than we actually are. In David's case, he had such a high view and pride towards his military might, towards towards his war power. But maybe for us, maybe we take pride in your abilities, your profession. You take pride in your money, in the assets that you have. If you're a student, maybe you take pride in being the president of a club or your intellect and your ability to get good grades. Maybe some of us uh, flex our theological knowledge, perhaps, and you're like, oh, you're not as good as me. You don't know much of the Bible as me. And you all think this is my doing, my ability, and my power. Smack one, may I suggest to all of us, even a reminder for myself, that we are not as good as we think we are. The fact that you can sit in your chairs right now, the fact that every breath that you breathe, the, uh, maybe you ate nasi lemak, maybe you ate roti chana this morning, comes from the Lord. Everything is only possible because of God. Your gifts, your talents, your strengths, your successes are impossible apart from God. And as a warning, the moment that we think that our successes are are attributed to my might and my power is the moment that we're saying, hey God, I don't need you. Go away. I'm better than you. So may I urge all of us to just consider uh, and pray and you know, when you go back home or even later during lunch uh, to consider if there's any pride in our hearts. Maybe the pride in how we treat your spouse, how you treat your parents, how you treat your children. And I pray the Spirit 
of God may convict our hearts truly, truly to realize that not only are we not good enough, but that even the very gifts and talents that we have belongs to God. And to remind us that apart from Him, we can do nothing. Just a reminder that David's pride was the issue here and for us as well, more often than not. So that's something for us to think about. Uh, and David did think about it and thankfully, thanks be to God that he had that moment where he was convicted by the Spirit. And in verse 10 right, of the passage, it tells us that David's heart, David's heart struck him. David's conscience was stricken. He, he realized that what he has done is wrong. Right? It says in that passage, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So we see David being sorry, but what was God's response to what David said or how, what, how David felt? Well, he sent the prophet God, uh, David's seer, seer also meaning prophet, to speak to him. And the prophet gave David three options. You can see that in verse 12 and 13. So it's three years of famine, so three years of no food. Three months of option B, three months of running away from his enemies, like how he ran away from Saul, Absalom maybe. And three ways, three ways, uh, three days of pestilence. Now the difference of these three options can be seen in the heavier the punishment, the shorter the length of the punishment. And the pestilence being the heaviest level of punishment, but the shortest in length, only three days compared to three years and three months. Now I think the pestilence is the heaviest punishment. I think right from the text, we can see some clues of what on earth is a pestilence. So we saw at the end of the Bible reading just now, a plague is involved, probably bugs, probably diseases, probably sickness. There's an angel of destruction involved, wiping away city, destroying people. And of course, in verse 15, it says that it involves the death of 70,000 people. So there's death involved. And I think David chose this option. And we see why from verse 14. Verse 14, it tells us that David chose this because it says it's better to fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. You see, David knew who his God was. He trusted in God's character to show mercy to him. And God did show mercy to him. The angel of destruction was about to wipe out all of Jerusalem. And the passage tells us the Lord relented from the calamity and stopped the destruction. Now, while all this destruction was happening, just imagine you chain scene and see, so while all this destruction is happening, chain scene, this is what David was reacting at the time. And he says in verse 17, very interestingly, he says, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. Please let your hand be against me, against my father's house. Now, on one hand, yes, David is responsible for large majority of what is happening right in front of his eyes. David disobeyed God by taking the census. So there is some truth in what David said, which is because of what David did, Israel was also punished in the process. But yet, we have to remember right all the way back to verse 1, who was the Lord angry at at first? Israel. Right? Israel. So the Lord has every right to be angry and wrathful against sin. Which means not only David's sin, which means not only Israel's sin, but for all of us sitting here today and for all of humanity, he has a right to be wrathful 
and angry against our sin, against all of us. Romans tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 1, 18 to 19, you can see on the screen, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Friends, we all have no excuse. We are all tainted with sin. That although we can know God, we choose to ignore this God. And as I mentioned earlier about pride, choosing to ignore God or not acknowledging God as your Lord is basically spiritual pride. And because of that, God has every right, just like how he was with Israel, just like how he was with David, to be wrathful against humanity for our sinfulness. And the wrath of God is a pretty big theme in this passage, so we may we heed that warning from the author telling us about the wrath of God. Now, of course, we see the Lord's mercy in the upcoming text. And a lot of us here, I reckon, some of us here, already experience God's mercy for yourself. Maybe some of us, you know that God is merciful and you know it's better to fall into the hand of the Lord. But if you have not experienced this mercy yet, which I can't take for granted, maybe there is some people sitting in this room who have not experienced this mercy May you heed this warning that God's wrath is upon you. It's upon sinners if you don't repent and turn to Him. May we heed that warning. I don't say this with joy. I say this with a sober heart that the wrath of God is real. But even for Christians, you've experienced God's mercy. I think it's still important to grasp and wrestle with this reality of God's wrath against your sin. Because there will come a day where his mercy will be no longer shown to those who rebel against him. Right? Even as our relationship with God, being him being our father, when we fall, when we sin, there's this tension that you know God is not pleased with you. Of course, through Jesus' blood, as we'll talk about later, through God's love, he will always forgive us. But I think it's important for us to just hold God's holiness and rough intention in our lives and just to be all in awe and thankful he has forgiven us in the first place so may they be a reminder to us as well as a reminder to the people around us about god's wrath so after david's cry to spare his people david's cry for mercy the prophet god appears once again and he's going to tell david exactly what the lord requires of him he tells david in verse 18 Go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Well, firstly, a threshing floor uh, is a place where grains are separated and their husk and the grain will be separated. Uh, an ox can crush it or, as you'll see later, a threshing sledge uh, apparatus to crush and then separate the thing and the wind will and the grains will be left. And the Jebusites, uh, just for information, they are former inhabitants of Jerusalem. So they were there in the pro way before the promised land, the first conquest, and they were there uh, during David's conquest in 2 Samuel chapter 5. You can read that on your own. But the point is, the prophet God tells David to build an altar in this place in order that the plague may be averted from the people. So he went to do that. David did exactly that. 
But I want you to notice the details that the author of 2 Samuel gives to us to look at. You see, the Jebusite was willing to offer the oxla, the tressing slash, and all these things that are needed to build this altar. Now, I don't know about you, I like free stuff. And I would probably like, ooh, free stuff, thick, and keep it for myself. Wow, got sale, 50%, better thick. Nothing wrong with sales, huh? But you probably take free stuff. But David's response was no, an emphatic no. He says that, David says, I won't offer burnt offerings to the Lord that costs me nothing. So he buys it. He builds the altar there. And as verse 25, it ends up, uh, it concludes that the plague was averted. Similarly to how the plague was averted in chapter 21. Now I want us to see two things uh, right as we end uh, this part of this final section of this passage. I want to see us two things. That firstly, in order for forgiveness of sin or for destruction to be averted, there must be blood shed. In, verse, in, verse, in chapter 21, there was blood shed. In chapter 24, there is blood shed as well. The oxen that David had to buy was offered during the burn, as a burnt offering to atone for the sins of Israel. Now, every time you see an Old Testament picture of a sacrifice or anything like that, for those of you who don't know, anytime you see something being uh, a sacrifice being offered in the Old Testament, it points to something greater than itself. It points to Jesus. It points to the New Testament, how Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. How Jesus was smitten by God, crushed for our iniquity. How in Hebrews 10, Jesus is described as the once for all sacrifice for sins. That all these Old Testament burnt offerings, all these oxen being killed are just a shadow to what Christ has done to his good and perfect and sufficient work on the cross for the sins of his people. So may we be thankful. Uh, one thing I, as, I came to, as I come to the year and as I come to smack and I just came to smack this year, that I'm so grateful. Every Sunday I'm reminded of this truth. So keep doing that as you gather every Sunday to remind each other time and time again, it will never get bored, it will never get old because that is the depth and love of Christ our Saviour. So remind us, to remind, let's remind each other continuously. Let's be thankful time and time again of what Christ has done for sinners such as us. That joy that we share together as brothers and sisters in Christ is so, so precious. So smack, may we continue to hold on to that for as long as the Lord allows this church to be here until he comes back again, whatever it is, that we hold on to this gospel forever. So that's the first thing that I want us to see. But the second thing I want to see is that free thing, that, well, rather David not getting the free stuff. I think that reflects David's heart, or David's heart of worship. There's this term called, or I call lip service Christianity, Maybe you gather on Sundays and you just are here for the sake of being here. My parents asked me to be here. La. My friend dragged me along. I've been in church for 10 years. Might as well keep doing it. But deep down, when you do all these things, when you stand up, when you sit down, when you read the Apostles' Creed, whatever it is, deep down they have no meaning because there is no heart of sincerity towards the worship of God. And the prophets in the Old Testament condemned this empty-hearted worship. They did this sacrifice, they celebrated these festivals, but deep down there is no reverence and love for God. It would have been one thing for David to just take the free stuff 
and just did the burnt offering, built the altar, got him and finish. But David knew, David knew, I think, that glorifying God, the worship of God, requires a personal sacrifice. Romans 12, chapter 1, tells us that we offer our bodies and our lives as a living sacrifice to God. And let's be very honest, this hall, I mean, we just changed our icons, thanks be to God, very comfortable place to worship God. can be a bit cramped, but other than that, it's a very comfortable place to worship God. But there are many, many Christians around the world that don't experience this same thing as us. And I'm not saying being in a comfortable place is bad. But our hearts, let's just be thankful that we may not take for granted every Sunday when we come here to worship God. That we come here on Sundays, may we not take that for granted. right? Not only on Sundays, but every day of our lives because worship is every single day. May we count the cost as we follow Jesus. May we take his mission seriously. May we not come on Sundays and just do mere lip service and then go back on the weekends just to not live out a Christian life. May we count the cost of following Christ. May we take it seriously so that God may be glorified at the end of the day. Now in conclusion, as we wrap up today's passage, We'll be covering, I think we're covering 1 Samuel since 2021. I think I wasn't around, I can't remember. 2020? Yeah. And we cover it all the way. We finish 1 and 2 Samuel. So what's next? As I mentioned, the author is helping us also to look forward. Well, in the whole of Kings, a temple is built. King Solomon will build a temple. And that temple in Jerusalem is built upon this same area and trashing floor at the top of Zion, Jerusalem. That's where the temple will be built. So this trashing floor, the author ends it here. If you read in 1 Chronicles, literally the next chapter is talking about the temple. So the author is also helping us to point forward to the next kings, to King Solomon and to the rest of the kings in 1 and 2 King. But once again, a reminder, we've seen once it is a very strong theme throughout 2 Samuel that there is no perfect king. Even the future kings in 1 and 2 Kings, as we know, most of us know, it ends up horribly. David is not the perfect king, but David is simply a shadow to the true and perfect king. So we ultimately look forward to Christ, him being the fulfillment of the kingship, him being our saviour and our Lord. And it's his advent, obviously we celebrate the incarnation of Christ at Christmas, but advent also reminds us to celebrate and to remember rather the second coming of Christ, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, that he will come and reign and rule as king forevermore. So let's look forward to that even as we enter into this Christmas season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God of the universe, we acknowledge, Lord, your holiness. We acknowledge your wrath upon our sins. Lord, we are so grateful that instead of uh, pouring your judgment on us, instead you poured your wrath upon your Son. That He was the once for all perfect and sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And we are so grateful for that. Lord, help us to examine our hearts if there is any pride in us. 
the pride in which we treat people around us, employees, children, spouse, whatever it is. May you remove that pride so that uh, we may be a pleasing sacrifice to you and to live uh, to be helpful and loving to the people around us. Uh, help us to realize that anything that we do, the only reason we are able to do it is because of you. Lord, as well, help us to live a life that's a pleasing sacrifice to you in other areas of our lives, uh, particularly as we follow you uh, every day. May we not take it for granted every time we gather on Sundays. May we not take for granted our lives. That Lord, if we call ourselves Christians, may we take this Christianity, may we take this following of you seriously to study your word, to uh, glorify your name in ever and all our walks in our life. Lord, may we not just come on Sunday just for the sake of it, or for the fun of it, but to come here to worship you, to fellowship with brothers and sisters to, in Christ, to edify one another, and to help each other be mature in Christ, and to point one another to you. So we thank you, Lord, for your words spoken this morning. Help us to think through it, even as we about to celebrate Christmas, as we remember Advent, we remember and look forward to the day uh, that you will come and reign and rule once and for all as King over all. So all glory to you, Father. It's your Son's most precious name we pray. Amen.